Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. This podcast is intended for entertainment and opinion. Nothing discussed is meant to be a substitute for mental health treatment. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. Hello. And welcome to Psychologically Minded. I am your host, Grace Fowler, and today we are kicking off the new year with a three-part series. So I wanted to do something special for the beginning of 2022, um, and I was inspired by the slogan, New Year, New You. So I'm going to do a three-part series on the show, You. (laughs) I know it's a corny joke, but I really wanted to dive into the series. I really love it. Um, And because there are three seasons in each season, is so rich and has so many moving parts. Um, I wanted to talk about each season within its own episode, Um, so there will be two more episodes after this dealing with season two and season three, Um, and I did just find out that a season four has been announced, so when that comes out I can do a follow-up part. But I also wanted to be able to address each season independently because this show overall does deal with a lot of stuff that is like related to mental health or the world of psychology and kind of understanding behavior and why people maybe become very desperate in relationships or engage in things like possessive behavior. Um, And there is a lot of symbolism in the show that I I think is interesting to talk about. Um, So that's why I'm going to spread it out over three episodes and and really be able to take the time. Um, If you haven't watched the show yet, I highly recommend it. It's really engaging. It it will really pull you in (laughs) very quickly. Um, definitely a binge show. Uh, I am going to give a content warning up here at the top. It's also going to be listed in the the show notes, so hopefully you saw that before you clicked on the episode. But this show does deal with some heavy topics like suicide, obviously violence, murder, and things like stalking. So if those are sensitive topics for you um, and you you know that you have a reaction to them, I just want to let you know up up front that we're going to be talking about some heavy toxic topics, particularly stalking, intimate partner violence, and suicide, uh, just so you have that warning. So without further ado, I'm going to dive into You, Season 1. Uh, I want to give a little uh, overview of the characters that we're going to be dealing with, just so as I go through the synopsis, you, you kind of know who I'm talking about if, if you haven't seen the show or need a refresher. Um, so first things first, our main character, Joe Goldberg, um, he's who we follow through the series. Uh, he is also our narrator. He works in a bookstore, and in this first season, he becomes obsessed and very possessive with his, um, I guess, love interest, Beck, uh, Guinevere Beck, who is a, another main character, uh, and continues to claim that he will do anything to protect her, which kind of becomes the basis for a lot of his uh, unsettling behavior. Um, And as I said, he narrates the series, but he is an unreliable narrator. Um, And I thought that this is a good concept to bring up, this concept of unreliable narrators. Now, if you work in mental health, um, you may have written this in a note (laughs) that someone is an unreliable narrator, an unreliable historian. Um, and, And when we say that, uh, or, or describe someone that way, we are, are really just saying that this person seems to tell a story about themselves that may not be true and seems to contradict uh, more of the evidence in front of us. So how this plays out with Joe is that he is telling the audience through his narration that he is in love with Beck, 
that he just wants to look out for her, um, that he would never do anything to hurt her. But the reality is, is that a lot of the actions and decisions that Joe makes do directly hurt Beck and ultimately, spoiler alert, lead to her death. So Joe is, is an unreliable narrator because what he says is not matching up with the reality of the world around him. And, and that can happen for a lot of reasons in the real world, right? Like, I think it's important to think about why would someone be an unreliable narrator, right? Particularly when it comes to mental health. So I think one reason is that sometimes when we're experiencing mental illnesses or mental health crises, um, it can be really hard to accurately portray what is going on um, from your experience and from reality, right? So whether that means that people exaggerate uh, things like symptoms or their experiences, um, and th- what you're seeing in front of you is, is not so true, or they minimize, right, and kind of deny or downplay symptoms, even though you're seeing someone in front of you who, who clearly seems to be in distress, both of those things can be either ways to get help or, or ways to maybe, like, avoid detection or avoid um, what may be perceived as, like, unwanted consequences, right? Like, especially for mental health, if, if someone is minimizing their symptoms, they may be trying to avoid something that happened to them in the past, like being put on a 5150 hold, being detained against their will, being given medication they don't want to be given, right? There's lots of things that that could lead to someone minimizing their symptoms. So I would say in the real world, being an unreliable narrator doesn't necessarily mean that you're a bad person or you're doing something wrong. Um, And there are lots of ways to understand that behavior. But in the context of Joe, uh, it is because he's bad. (laughs) Like Joe is a bad character. Um... And his inability to just like match up how he thinks about the world with what's really happening in the world can be a symptom of, of perhaps mental health uh, condition he has, right? Like he could be delusional, uh, unable to like see the world for what it really is. Um, but I, I think the show does a really good job of showing that it is mostly to serve his agenda and to get him what he wants. Um, so in this case, being an unreliable, in Joe's case, being an unreliable narrator is, is not a good thing. Now, I, I also wanted to mention that I used to have a, a colleague at a, a clinical site where I was working um, who would always say there is no such thing as an unreliable narrator, that uh, if you think someone is being an unreliable narrator, it just means that you as the interviewer or you as like the person doing an assessment uh, hasn't done a good enough job. Right, you haven't made the person feel comfortable enough, or you haven't asked the right questions, and it's not their job to, it's not like the patient or client's job to know what you need to know. Right, it's your job as the the helper, the person in the helping position to ask the right questions um, and to not give up. And so, uh, I always think about that when I see this term come up, because I I understand that sometimes we use it as a shorthand to say like, you know, when you see if you hear someone called an unreliable narrator, you kind of have a good guess of, of how they communicate. Um, and, you know, and that's kind of a quick quick way to say it, but the reality is, is that I, I think what this colleague used to say is very true, that in the rea- in reality there, there aren't unreliable narrators, that it's, uh, it's our job to really take time and ask the right questions um, and make people, not make people feel tr- like they can trust you, but actually like gain people's trust so that they can tell you what's really going on. But that's my little like <laughs> aside about the, the labels, right? Labels are um, can be good, but also can be damaging. So just I think it's important to understand. So long story short, that's our main character, Joe, who we're going to be following around throughout the show. And we're going to learn a lot more about his character and, and his behavior as we go through the season. Um, 
Next we have Candace. So Candace is Joe's ex-girlfriend who is tangentially mentioned in the show and we see that she has gone missing um, from after she was dating Joe um, and, and we, we see her we see most her mostly in like pictures in the season, although she does make an appearance um, in the last episode, and she will play a much bigger role in the next season. So I'll, I'll talk more about her character um, in episode two. But just so you know, like that, Candace's character has a pretty large background presence in the first season. Um, then we also have Beck, Guinevere Beck, who is Joe's main love interest. Um, she is a graduate student in a writing program. I think one of the interesting things about Beck's character is that. Um, she, she, you know, she's in graduate school. She's in New York. Um, this whole thing, this whole show takes place in New York City. She's in New York, and she's surrounded by very wealthy people. A lot of her friends are well off. Um, Beck is not. Beck has a lot of financial problems, which uh, kind of play a role in how she ends up in some situations that that become uncomfortable for her because there's this pressure on her to not just to maintain a, a wealthy lifestyle, but to be able to maintain like her her education, her housing. Um, and so this, this does, or, or Beck's, um, financial status does play a role in, in her character. And I, I do think it's interesting that it's so contrasted with some of her friends who, who are, um, very, very wealthy and, and, uh, throughout the show don't seem to understand Beck's concerns for things like money or resources. So that, that Beck is our, our main love interest in the show. Um, then we have Paco, the child of Joe's next door neighbor. Um, jo- Paco struggles with his abusive stepfather, and we often see him locked out of his apartment, kind of sitting on the steps in front of Joe's apartment. Um, and Joe befriends him and often gives him books to read. So I mentioned Paco because I think it's important to see that uh, one of the things that is maybe tricky or makes this show not so black and white and saying that Joe is a bad guy is the relationship that he develops with Paco. Um, and he does seem to, he does superficially seem to demonstrate some level of care for Paco. Um, he, he looks out for him. He checks in on him. He tries to bring him books that he thinks he will like, or that will teach him something that Paco can use in his real life. Um, but, and, and the reason I say it's superficial, um, is that, as we learn more about Joe and in season one, we don't learn too much about his childhood, but as we learn more about his childhood, I think it becomes clear that the reason that Joe relates to Paco is because Paco reminds him of himself and he is only interested in protecting Paco because he sees Paco as an extension of himself or maybe an opportunity to kind of reclaim his own childhood. Um, and I think that uh, if Paco did not resemble Joe's childhood experiences so closely, that Joe may not have cared for him or gone so much out of his way to take care of Paco. Um, and, and, you know, and it's not something that the show like really explicitly says, but I think that especially as I've kind of reviewed all of the seasons that I'm watching season three, we're really looking, we're really getting to see a lot of Joe's backstory. And, and I, and I think now for me, it is really clear that Joe's connect, Joe, Joe is unable to have meaningful connections with people. We see this in season one in so many ways. And so it doesn't make sense that he would have a meaningful connection with Paco when he can't have meaningful connections with any other people. And so I think it makes more sense that his interest or his protectiveness of Paco is related to 
more how Joe sees Paco as part of himself or part of his story because Paco has such a similar upbringing um, that Joe had. So uh, Paco's stepfather, his name is Ron. He's the next door neighbor. He's a parole officer and he flexes that a lot when talking to Joe. And Ron seems to be one of the only people in the show that gets bad vibes from Joe, which I think is really interesting because Ron is coded as like this really bad guy. He's verbally and physically abusive to Paco and his mother. Um, he's like, he seems to have some issues with substances, mostly alcohol. Uh, you know, he's a parole officer. He doesn't have the greatest reputation. Um, but he does seem to be able to gauge Joe's character and gets the sense very early on that Joe is not a good person. Um, and I think this kind of dives into or, or kind of helps support why Joe is seen as such a good character or a compelling character by by some audience members, why they're, they're so drawn to him, is that the only person, or there's two people really, who raised the flag about Joe, but uh, and Ron is one of them, and so if one of the people raising the flag <laughs> or warning bells about Joe is this like kind of piece of crap guy, then <laughs> like... What does that say about Joe, right? That it's like, well, everyone else seems to really like him or, or, you know, at least be neutral about him, but it's just this one bad guy that thinks Joe's not cool. And I think kind of adds to that, um, like, unassuming nature of Joe. Of Like, he, he's just kind of your every everyday kind guy. Um, and if the only people who don't like him are coded as bad people in the show, then there must be nothing wrong with Joe. So, and, and that's what I find interesting about Ron. And again, I think that Joe has so many problems with Ron, um, and eventually Joe does kill Ron. <laughs> um, and one of those reasons is that Ron represents male figures that Joe had in his life growing up. And again, he's only bothered by Ron because Ron so much mirrors his own past experiences and if Ron was different from the men that were in Joe's life as a child I don't think he would care as much he wouldn't be invested um so again Paco and Ron are really ex kind of stand-ins for Joe's childhood experiences um and I think Joe is trying to kind of reclaim or do things differently uh, but it doesn't work out for him <laughs> as, as we'll see um, okay, so our next character is Benji. This is Beck's boyfriend, friend with benefits. He's He just seems to be mostly sleeping with Beck, um, and he kind of refuses to commit to her in any serious way. He's a pretty stereotypical, like, wealthy hipster tech bro. Um, a lot of his dialogue is about how he only drinks, like, organic beer or cold brew coffee. Like, you know, he's a lot of very... <laughs> specific tastes um and he he is he is not very nice to beck um and seems to be mostly using her for sex but so that's benji and of course joe hates benji because benji is he sees benji as an obstacle to him uh being with beck uh then we have peach peach salinger who is beck's best friend she is uh allegedly related to jd salinger so her family is like incredibly wealthy um, we also find out later on in the show that Peach is sexually and romantically obsessed with Beck and is attempting to kind of keep Beck away from other relationships. Uh, and it also does seem to be insinuated that Peach cannot openly be a lesbian. Her family would be very disappointed in her, so it is set up to be a very like tragic, um, she's set up to be kind of a tragic queer figure. But she does ultimately become very protective of who Beck spends her time with. 
Um, and, and I think, you know, not, not just for selfish reasons. I think Peach is a nuanced enough character that the reason she's protected of Beck, of Beck it is influenced by her feelings for Beck, but I think also her friendship for Beck, right? Like, she ca- she cares about Beck outside of just wanting to be her partner, uh, or, you know, be, like, to be physically intimate with her. And Peach is the second person in Beck's life, or, or in the show, who, uh, raises red flags about Joe, and Peach does not like Joe, and of course Joe does not like her, and once he finds out that she is interested in Beck romantically, he sees her as a much bigger threat. Um, but again, only other person in the show who raises any red flags about Joe, and they're kind of brushed aside because Peach has this reputation of being like very possessive of Beck as well. And, uh, you know, one thing that, that Beck's, or Peach's character brings up is that people can have your best interests at heart. Like, like Joe is obsessed with Beck, but he doesn't have Beck's best interests at heart, right? He's obsessed with her because of what he gets out of it. But it Peach does seem to be a character who, although obsessed with Beck, is obsessed with her for her own best in, for her own interest, right? For Beck's interest. Um, and does appear to be looking out for Beck, often offers to pay for things, to pay Beck's rent, because she you know Beck struggles with money. And her attitude is very much like, well, I have so much money, it doesn't matter. I will give you money. <laughs> um, but, you know, Beck obviously doesn't want to take up her up on that offer. Um, but, you know, d- you do get the sense from Peach that she is doing the things that she does to for Beck, not just for her own gratification in the way that Joe does it. Um, and then we have two more characters. We have Mr. Mooney, who is a, kind of a background character, but he's the person who owns the bookstore. And we find out that he became a father figure for Joe um, when Joe was living in a group home. Um, but he also was a very harsh and abusive father figure for Joe um, and probably contributed to why, not the only reason why, but does influence why Joe handles situations the way that he does. And then last but not least, we have Dr. Nikki, who is Beck's therapist that Joe goes to see in an attempt to see if Beck is having an affair with him. Um, And Dr. Nikki is ultimately framed for the murder of Beck. And later on this episode, I'm going to talk about how Dr. Nikki is a uh, problematic (laughs) portrayal of a therapist. Um, But interesting to see how, how mental health professionals kind of play a role in this show, particularly in this season. So those are our, our main cast of characters. There are other characters in the show as well who, you know, do play important roles, but I, you know, I'm not going to talk about every plot line, every, every character. So if you want to know who those people are, you can watch the show. But I think these are some of the people who are important because they either highlight um, how Joe is rationalizing his past treatment or uh, serve as sort of catalyst for his present behavior. So the synopsis, what happens in the first season? So First season starts off with Joe working in the bookstore. He meets Beck when she comes in to buy a book, and she ends up buying a book that Joe really likes based on his recommendation, and so he becomes immediately infatuated with her. Um, And it is interesting that the first few um, minutes of the show, it's it seems like just kind of a typical like meet cute moment. Like it's it's played as just like a regular romantic encounter and these are just two people two like attractive people who are interested in each other because of a small interaction that they had like nothing out of the ordinary if you were to meet someone like this and ask them out on a date right like that wouldn't be unheard of however it becomes very quickly (laughs) on like problematic 
um, when Joe begins to search the internet for information about her and he begins to stalk her and finds out where she lives and will wait and watch her outside of her apartment. Um, and Beck, unfortunately, is somebody who likes to keep her blinds open all the time so that Joe can look right in. She seems to not have any awareness that someone is watching her. Um, so it very, very quickly, Joe becomes inappropriate and, and begins stalking her. Um, as he's stalking her, he learns about Benji and realizes that as long as Benji is in the picture, Beck is never going to be interested in him. So he begins to devise a plan of how he will get rid of Benji. So he captures Benji by luring him into the alley behind the bookstore, um, and he puts him in the cage that's in the basement of the bookstore. So this cage is supposed to be for like rare books that can't get that need to be kept in like a dry protected environment um so although it looks like it's built to be a prison cage it really is <laughs> meant to protect books um but throughout the the series and throughout the season we see that Joe frequently uses the cage to not just store books but to capture people. And we do find out that when Joe was a young man working for Mr. Mooney in the bookstore, Joe would be locked in that cage as a punishment by Dr. Mooney when he, you know, did something wrong or messed, you know, did something against what Mr. Mooney wanted him to do. Um, and so the cage, and it will show up in every season, um, it serves, I think, as a symbol for two things. On one hand, it's a symbol of how Joe is trapped in this cage of his own making, because he's always trying to run from or deal with the consequences of his his very bad actions and bad decisions um whether that means like even down to the things like just stalking like not just the murder he does but (laughs) the stalking he does um he's like constantly trying to dig himself out of these holes he puts himself in because he can't stop his compulsions to to do these behaviors um and i think on the other side uh Joe uses this cage so often to lock people in it in a way to kind of take back control over what happened to him in the cage. I think it's very similar to what I was saying about why Joe feels so connected to Paco, because Paco represents Joe as a child. Um, The cage represents things that were done to Joe that, you know, were bad, were abusive, um, and it is his way of taking back control of that situation and doing what was done to him, essentially, to people that he sees as being in his way of achieving happiness or or what he wants out of the world. He puts Benji in this cage. Long story short, Benji's in the cage, and Joe is attempting to bargain with him. He has some dirt on Benji, and um, he's trying to strike up a deal where, because he has this dirt on Benji, Benji won't tell anyone about um, the cage and will leave Beck alone. Um, However, Joe realizes that's not going to work, so he kills Benji by putting peanut oil into Benji's coffee because Benji is allergic to peanuts. Um, so this is Joe's first murder that we see in the show. Um, in season one, he will murder other people, and we do find out that he has murdered people in the past in events that take place before the show starts. Um, but for season one, Benji's is the first murder. We see how Joe begins to justify these killings, right? He's He, as the unreliable narrator, <laughs> tells us that he had to get rid of Benji because Benji was bad for Beck, that Beck will be better off without him, um, and that really it's a net positive him killing Benji because he and Beck will be much happier. Um, 
So now, of course, Joe has a body to deal with, so he's attempting to get rid of the body while trying to move forward with Beck. Um, but Beck, Beck is a little more, I guess, open or egalitarian in her relationship style, so she's kind of at a point in her life where she's dating around. She's not really necessarily committed to one person, and so even though she is interested in Joe, she is still seeing other people, uh, which of course angers him. <laughs> um, and every time there, there are a couple scenes where he tries to get close with Beck. He tries to, you know, be at her house with her alone, but Peach, uh, kind of interrupts. Um, and this makes sense after, you know, when we retroactively learn that, that Peach is interested in Beck. Um, it makes sense why Peach is always kind of showing up to, to foil, um, Joe's turn, or Joe's attempts to be with Beck, um, but eventually this episode ends with Joe and Beck finally getting together to have sex, um, but Joe prematurely ejaculates, and it's very disappointing for both him and Beck. And I think this episode, this is the third episode, this one really does a good job of showing how Joe reacts to being what he calls emasculated, or not what he calls, but I think what he would view as being emasculated, like between Peach and the premature ejaculation, these are two examples of, like, someone or something getting in the way of his ability to be with the woman that he's obsessed with um, in, a, in a masculine way, right? Like, and, and Joe does not want to be traditionally masculine, like, especially in contrast to Benji, he wants to be kind, understanding, kind of, like, unassuming, non-threatening, like, he wants to be, um, I guess, like, a more gentle masculinity, I, I don't know what the best <laughs> way to describe it is, but he doesn't want to be traditionally masculine, but he does react very negatively when he is prevented from engaging in what he would, I think, define as, like, kind of the core tenets of masculinity, right? Like being with this woman and especially being with her physically. Um, and, you know, it, I think it is a moment of humor in the show of like, there's all this buildup and you did all this crazy stuff and you killed somebody. Um, and then you have like 20 seconds of disappointing sex with this woman you've been obsessed with forever. Like, you know, and I think it's also kind of a sly hint at like, you know, sometimes we build people up in our minds and we think everything's gonna be perfect and it's not it doesn't mean that we need to like overreact and quit and murder um but you know things don't always go the way that we plan so after this kind of disappointing encounter in the next episode joe finds out that beck is still in contact with her father and throughout the show she's been telling people that her father is dead um but joe only finds out that her father's still alive because he's still stalking her even though they are more formally together or more formally dating I don't remember at this point of the show if they are, like, dating, dating, but moving more in the direction of, of being more, uh, like, exclusive with each other. Um, and so we see that even though Joe has technically gotten what he wanted, like, he's dating Beck, he's getting her attention, he can't stop the behavior of stalking her and, and these more um, nefarious, like, behind-the-scenes things that he's doing. He's not stopping, even though he got what he allegedly wanted. And I think this also highlights how some of the stuff for Joe is compulsive, that I don't think he could stop it if he wanted to. Um, and that's, and part of what makes him such a, I don't want to say evil, I don't like saying that people are evil, I know he's a fictional character, but I think part of what makes him such a irredeemable character is that he has these compulsions and he knows that he can't stop him by himself, but he's unable to 
ask for help or figure out like a solution. He's just like, well, I have these compulsions, so I better do them. So he follows Beck out to this trip with her father and his wife and children and kind of finds out that Beck is, is relying on her father to support her financially, but there's some conflict there because her father has this new family and he wasn't around in Beck's life um, and that Beck's father has uh, struggles with addiction and that, that's why he wasn't in her life. So all that to say is that Joe could have learned these things about Beck if he took his time, built her trust, you know, was able to be someone she could confide in. But instead, he wants to shortcut all these things that we have to build up to within intimacy. And he wants to know all these things about her. So he just follows her around um, to get all their information. And also, I didn't mention this before, but he does this thing where he breaks into her house and he takes her old phone so it's synced up to her computer so he can see her messages. Like, he sees what she's texting people, which is one on one hand how he's able to follow her, but also how he's able to know like what she's saying about him because he's reading her text messages. So again, from the very beginning, Joe is not able to just like relax, <laughs> slow down, and let trust build uh, within the relationship slowly and organically. He's trying to like fast track a lot of these things because he needs to have control over the relationship and, and over Beck. Um, so after this episode where Joe meets Beck's father, um, we move into the next episode where it becomes clear that Peach is really ramping up her attempts to separate Joe and Beck. She's kind of always in the middle. She's taking up a lot of Beck's time. So of course, Joe naturally starts to feel threatened by her. So his plan is that he's going to try to kill Peach. And he first attempts by hitting her head, her, hitting her on the head with a rock while she's running through the park. <laughs> um, like, Straight up, in the middle of Central Park, he decides to just bash her head with a rock, which is like, what a great plan, Joe. That's definitely going to go well for you. Um, And she doesn't die, so now she's taking up even more of Beck's time because she's just been assaulted in the park and naturally wants her friend around her. Um, And because they're spending so much time, Peach and Beck together, Joe is able to go through Peach's laptop and he finds... I don't know if it's like erotic literature or just like uh, diary entries but he finds stuff on Peach's computer that suggests that she is romantically and sexually interested in Beck um, and has been for a long time and is is trying to like keep Beck from from Joe so that Peach and her can be together and that she's going to take Beck on this trip to Paris in an attempt to kind of like romance Beck away from Joe. So into the next episode Peach retreats back to a family home because, uh, again, she's a Salinger, so there's they have property and money all over the place. And she takes Beck with her because she wants to get away from the city because she's so nervous after this attack. And and again, this is a situation where it's like, it, it tracks. Like, it makes sense that Peach is nervous or feeling vulnerable, but she's using it to manipulate Beck. Um, and I think the show is trying to basically show us, like, although Peach may have different motivations and maybe less nefarious than Joe. Um, Both of them are manipulating Beck and it is not beneficial and in fact kind of demolishes the relationship that Beck has with both Peach and Joe because of this manipulation because although Beck doesn't seem to be be very situationally aware, she is aware um, that she's being manipulated. Like She she starts to realize what is happening. Um, She's just seen as like or shown as this like very kind-hearted person who who kind of can't say no to anyone um but anyway 
Peach and Beck retreat to their this family home, and of course Joe can't leave them alone, so he stalks them because he's afraid that Peach and Beck being alone will mean that Peach will seduce Beck away from him. Again, not he's showing that he doesn't trust Beck inherently, right? Of like trusting Beck to be able to say like I'm not interested in you and I just want to be your friend and that that Beck and Peach have been friends for a long time and nothing has happened so why would all of a sudden something happen because you're in the picture he he's just not trusting her so he socks her and he hits his head climbing around and he kind of starts to hallucinate he has like I, I guess he has like a concussion or something so he's hallucinating and he's trying to sneak his way around this house but he's like dizzy and having some flashbacks um and interestingly enough, this trope of Joe either getting a head injury or ingesting some sort of substance or something happening to him where he starts to lose consciousness, this reoccurs across each season. Um, and I think it's it serves to illustrate that no matter what is going on, whether Joe is like about to die or ill or on drugs, he is so single-mindedly focused on possessing and controlling the object of his attention that he like cannot he like cannot be stopped right like he's he'll be bleeding internally in his brain and he he won't be stopped he's like still gonna fight through it um while he's sneaking around in the house um peach invites a male friend over and she tries to initiate a threesome with herself beck and the male friend but beck gets upset because she's she just isn't interested in doing that and thought she was just there to support Peach, you know, after this assault. Um, Beck, so Beck gets upset and, and goes to leave. Peach finds out that Joe is in the house because he's, you know, not doing a good job of hiding because he's hallucinating. And she attempts to shoot him, but through a series of very tense chase scenes, um, Joe is able to trick her, um, get the gun from her and kill her and he, he uh, fakes her suicide. So this is why I said a content warning for suicide at the beginning because, you know, she, Peach doesn't herself do it, but it is made to look that way. And Joe even like fakes a suicide note. And so I think with Peach's death, we really see that Joe has no limits to what he will do because it won't, it, it will hurt Beck. Like killing Peach will obviously hurt Beck, right? Like, and his whole narrative is that he doesn't want to do anything to hurt Beck. Peach being dead will hurt her feelings, but Peach committing suicide or dying by suicide is going to hurt her feelings even more because naturally Beck is going to blame herself for what happened, that she wasn't a good enough friend, she wasn't supportive enough, you know, like this this is the kind of death that would really impact someone like Beck, who is very close to Peach and, you know, they had just had this fight. You know what I mean? Like, although I understand Joe is giving his motivation of like, oh, I'm doing this to protect Beck. He's not. He he, he isn't. And obviously, c- killing people isn't protecting Beck. But not only is he just killing people, but he's um he he's framing things and he's he's putting things together in ways that will hurt Beck even more than if he just essentially left her alone. <laughs> um. So after Peach's death, um, into the next episode, we see that. Uh, Beck and Joe break up when she Beck catches him following her to her therapist's office um, because Joe becomes obsessed with the idea that um, Beck is sleeping with her therapist and so even though they break up he still can't let it go so in an attempt to prove his theory he goes to see the therapist and this is Dr. Nikki um, he goes under a fake name and you know is trying to get information 
out of the therapist by being a fake client. Now, interestingly enough, while he is around Dr. Nikki, he ends up hearing a recording from one of Beck's sessions that is recorded, because of course he's breaking into this therapist's office and, you know, reading his emails and <laughs> listening to the recordings of sessions. Um, he realizes that Beck is better off without him, and he's, you know, he kind of tells himself, like, I, I am just hurting her with what I'm doing, I need to just walk away, and she'll, she'll be better off without me. So Beck and Joe are kind of going their own separate ways. We move into the next episode where we see that it's been about three months. Joe has started dating someone new, who I believe is actually the babysitter, Paco's babysitter. So she, he really just loves to date people that are convenient to him that just are in his life already. Um, and Beck is still seeing Dr. Nikki and kind of working through... Um, still kind of working through her relationship with Joe. Uh, they run into each other on the street and start to flirt again and eventually get back together. So we have a brief respite where it seems like maybe Joe is getting it. He's getting that he becomes obsessed and too possessive and that he really was harming Beck with his behavior and he's ready to let go and move on. Um, but that lasts for like, well, for us, for like 30 seconds, but it only lasts for a couple months. Um, moving into the next episode, we finally get to find out what happened to Candace, who has been mentioned off and on throughout the series, uh, or throughout the season, and has been, it's been insinuated that Joe killed her, um, because she just vanished one day, um, but people, you know, can't pin it on him because her social media accounts still post, and it looks like she went to, I think, Italy? Um, we can see the flashback, uh, Candace was cheating, uh, on him. She was having an affair, so he killed the man that she was having an affair with by pushing him off of a building, um, and then he attempts to kill Candace. We later find out that he didn't do a good job, uh, and he went to bury her body, but she was still alive, so she was able to kind of dig her way out and uh, escape. We also come to realize that Joe is not new to this impulse or compulsion to kill people, and that, you know, Candace and the, the man she was having an affair with uh, are, probably, are probably not even his first uh, murders. Uh, he also confirms from Beck in this episode that she was having an affair with her therapist, so Dr. Nikki was sleeping with her. Um, then they, Beck and Joe confess their love for each other, and it seems like it's going to end on a high note. He's going to get the girl. You know, they're being honest with each other. Um, but then... Beck finds this creepy box that Joe has in his bathroom that has mementos of his victims and also has her old phone and a stolen pair of her underwear and he, she realizes that he's been tracking her and that he's probably responsible for a lot of the people in her life who have gone missing or have died. Um, so she flips out and to deal with it, Joe puts her in the cage in the basement of the bookstore. So. This takes us into the final episode of the series, or the show, where um, Beck is in the cage, she's pleading, she tries all these different me methods. She finally realizes that if she tells him that she loves him, he will do whatever she wants. Um, that's like kind of the one last place to manipulate Joe, is through being told that you love him. So she tricks him, manages to lock him in the cage, and she tries to escape. Unfortunately, Joe gets out, and ultimately kills Beck. And this is where we see, like, in conjunction with what he did to Candace and what he does to Beck, we see that he has a limit. And once you push him over the limit with 
these women that he idealizes. Um, he His only solution is to kill them. And he basically, I think it sends this message that he doesn't think that they deserve to live if they can't be the woman that he thinks he deserves or that he wants them to be. Um, and so Beck made so many mistakes that he... Uh, so many things that he sees as mistakes that he gets to the breaking point and she's seen as disposable. He buries her body and sends a fate confession from Dr. Nikki for the murder, basically framing Dr. Nikki, and then takes one of Beck's unfinished manuscripts and edits it to implicate Dr. Nikki and kind of reveal that they were having this relationship. So Dr. Nikki is like arrested and basically convicted of Beck's murder. Um, and then Joe, like, becomes rich from Beck's book that he publishes. Um, so it's like, he, like, Joe really comes out on top. He, he's profiting um, from Beck's murder and, like, there's no consequences. Um, and then the last, one of the last moments of the show is we see Candace strolling into the bookstore saying that she needs to talk to him. And, of course, Joe is stunned because he thinks that she's dead and the show ends on a cliffhanger. So <laughs> season one, that's it in a nutshell. A lot of wild stuff going on, and that's not even, you know, everything that happens, and not even the extent of all of Joe's murders, because <laughs> um, he really he really gets busy. Um, but I want to kind of talk about some of the themes and some of the analysis um, that I I had when watching this show. Um, so first of all, I wanted to talk about um, the. I've talked about the character of Joe, right? Like he's not a good guy, but there have been some reactions from viewers of thinking that Joe is attractive, you know, like maybe seeing some of Joe's obsessive qualities as something they would want in a partner. Um, and one of the interesting things that has come out of this discourse is that the actor, Penn Badgley, who plays Joe, um, has been very vocal about people wanting people to understand that Joe is a bad guy and that uh, Joe should not be given any attention really or like seen in any positive light um and he uh he really has like in most interviews tried to say that like Joe is is a bad character but he um and that Joe people should not be attracted to Joe in any way um but he also has acknowledge that one of the reasons why Joe is such um, maybe an attractive character or, or why people kind of overlook some of his <laughs> quote-unquote bad behavior is because Joe is thin, attractive, young, white, and male. And it kind of gives him cover for, for what he does wrong. Um, and I watched a really interesting interview that uh, is linked in the sources page um, where he, he talks about like the fact that Joe is in a body that looks like Penn Badgley's body um, does give him cover for these things, whereas if, if Joe, the character, was in a different type of body, uh, we, we would not be conditioned to be so understanding uh, of that kind of character. So I really appreciate that he does say that. Um, he has also publicly stated that there is no redemption for the character of Joe, um, and that Joe is not actually looking for real love. Joe is not capable of loving someone else because he is too delusional and sociopathic. Now, I have said before on this show that, like, I don't engage in diagnosing people that I don't work with. Um, and, you know, of course, Joe is not a real person. <laughs> He's a fictional character. Uh, and so, you know, I don't, I don't want to be, I don't want to be, uh, I don't want to say anything conclusive, like, Joe has, you know, diagnosis X, Y, and Z, um, because, 
he's a, a fictional character and, and he can't gather any more information about it. But I will say that Joe does display some things that we can use the language of pathology to understand. And um, although sociopath is not a official like diagnosis in the DSM, um, and just calling someone delusional is, again, not a diagnosis. Um, I think that there are elements of Joe's character that speak to maybe a thought process um, that is mismatched with the reality that he sees in front of him. And he uh, does appear to hold some, I guess we could call them like erotic delusions, because he has this belief that if he does X, Y, and Z, protects the woman he's obsessed with, then that woman will love him, and he's kind of entitled to that love. Um, which it's, you know, I think you could argue that that is a delusion. Um, and he does seem to have kind of a willful disregard for people's feelings, wants, or desires, um, even in the context of people that he says he loves, right? Like, he does not have a lot of regard for what Beck's desires and wants are, and seems to think that he knows what's best for Beck, um, and, and doesn't seem to want to allow her to make the mistakes that she's going to make as a young woman who is trying to figure out her life, because I believe she's only in her 20s uh, in the show. Um, and, and again, although that wouldn't be, we wouldn't call someone a sociopath, um, because it's not a diagnosis, that, that disregard for other people's wants and needs it is a kind of a hallmark of what we would call antisocial personality disorder, where the person experiencing this type of disorder would not be able to always weigh other people's um, needs and may act in ways that, that disregard that. Now, Joe's presentation is, is, is very unique because he is doing it from this context of believing he's protecting someone, which is a little bit different than uh, like a classic presentation of antisocial personality disorder where the person may, may not have any additional reasoning for why they violate the, the rights of others, they, they may just do it um, based on like trauma in their past upbringing um, and, and the factors that kind of go into why someone may develop a personality disorder. Um, but all that to say that I think it is really interesting that the actor has been so vocal about, hey, this is not a good person. Uh, you know, Joe is not a good character. And I think that he, him continuing to bring that approach is really helpful in him continuing to play this character over the seasons um, and not getting caught up in what could be a very romanticized view of, of this very disturbing behavior. So some of the central themes we see in the show, obviously, is about stalking. I did want to share some statistics about stalking, just so that you are informed um, about this type of behavior and can see why when Joe does it, it it's not romantic and it is very dangerous. Um, we do see from the beginning of episode one that Joe is willing to follow his, his crush, the object of, of his affection, anywhere, and he has no reservations about pretty blatantly spying on her, even going so far as to break into her home and hack into her technology, her social media pages, and her, her communication methods. Um, so some facts about stalking, uh, just so we realize that it's more common than just, <laughs> you know, this one-off situation displayed in the show. Um, up to 7.5 million people in the U.S. will be stalked within a one-year period. Um, one in six women and one in 17 men have experienced some form of stalking in their lifetime. Um, stalking can include the use of technology, including installing listening devices in someone's home, cameras, or GPS devices on their person or vehicle. 
Um, the majority of stalking victims are stalked by someone they know, and I do think it is important that Joe's stalking is in the context of someone that he, I mean, he does, at the beginning, he just initially meets Beck, like, once, but he continues to stalk her even as their relationship grows deeper, um, and I think that this fits in with the profiles of people who engage in stalking, is that they are more likely to do it of someone that they know, and unfortunately, stalking is often a, um, side effect, (laughs) symptom, um, consequence of intimate partner violence, and so, We may see that in um, relationships where there is some sort of intimate partner violence, whether it's emotional, physical, or verbal, that stalking is likely to occur in those situations as well. Um, About two-thirds of stalkers will pursue their victims at least once a week, although many of those will engage daily and using multiple methods. So we see that with Joe as well, of that if he's not able to physically follow her around because he still has to go to work and, you know, at least have the facade of a normal life. He is using like technological methods to keep track of her um, when he can't be physically present, present to keep an eye on her. So again, it fits into what we see in the data and the numbers of, of what is reported about stalking. Um, that being said, 78% of stalkers typically use more than one means of approach and weapons are used to harm or threaten victims in one out of five cases of stalking. Now, we don't really see um, Joe going to threaten Beck until toward the very end when, when his opinion of her has shifted and he is uh, no longer seeing her as an object of affection but as um, you know someone to be punished uh, you know because he ultimately kills her. Um, we, but we, we don't see him before that use any weapons against her. Um, but he does use that against Peach and he is an, an essentially stalking Peach as well. Um, which I think fits in with that um, most stalking victims, they know the person stalking them. It doesn't have to be an intimate partner. Sometimes it's, it's just like an acquaintance. So he knows Peach through his relationship with Beck. And so even when he's engaging in stalking her, um, it, it is because he, she's known to him. And I think this helps us to continue to illustrate that, you know, Joe, there is a, a streak of what we could call narcissism in Joe, where he really is uninterested in people who are not beneficial to him or, or aren't in his orbit. So, like, for example, that I you know, I mentioned before, like, I don't think he would care about Ron and Paco if they didn't so closely mirror his own experience, right? He's not interested in some of Beck's other friends that aren't as, um, I guess, as much of a threat. Like, because she does have other friends and other people in her life that she's interacting with and that we see, and Joe doesn't see them as much of a threat as he does see Peach as a threat, and so he's not engaging in things like stalking of her other graduate school classmates, or her professors, or her other friends, or even um, once he knows her family members where they are, he's not engaging in stalking them, but because he sees Peach as a threat, he is going to engage in this behavior, and it may be compulsive, (laughs) you know, he may not necessarily have 100% control over why he does these things, um, but I think it does illustrate this, this like narcissistic streak of Joe of that if it doesn't directly affect him and who he, and by extension, Beck, because he's made her a part of himself by being obsessed with her, um, then he doesn't care about you. He, he really could care less about who's walking around him. He's not interested in like the pain and stories of other people if they are not connected to him or, or to Beck. Um, and final stalking 
statistic is that about one-third of stalkers have stalked before, um, and we see this with Joe. He's going to continue stalking in the next series, or the next seasons, and he has, in the past, we know that he's he's stalked Candace, and, and not just stalked, but like engaged in this compulsive, obsessive, um, inappropriate behavior. And I know that I've been saying compulsive and obsessive to describe Joe, and I want to be very clear that I don't I'm not using those terms in the context of like obsessive compulsive disorder or OCD, right? There are people who maybe have a diagnosis or have behavior that that kind of maps on to the cluster of traits we associate with obsessive compulsive disorder and those people are not going to be violent, they're not going to you know violate rights of other people. Um, they may be suffering due to the um, some of the consequences of their illness, but it doesn't mean that they're bad people and that I don't think, in fact, I don't think Joe would meet criteria for OCD if we were going to play the diagnosis game, um, but that I think that he he has he has some tendencies that can be best described as becoming obsessed or very fixated with a person and then being unable to stop himself from engaging in certain behaviors to pursue that person. Now, typically for people diagnosed with OCD, what underlies the obsessions or the compulsions, because fun fact, you don't have to have both to qualify for this order um, in the DSM, but a lot of what underlies that is this anxiety um, and, and of kind of, whether it's like to protect oneself, protect loved ones, um, it it's it, these behaviors and these thought patterns kind of develop out of what I would call like an, an underlying anxiety. Joe's behavior, although maybe anxiety driven based upon his childhood and his most likely very disorganized attachment, <laughs> um, his behaviors are are not necessarily driven out of like a fear or concern for the other person, um, but of a kind of a, a fixation on how the other person is impacting him, right? Because Again, he's narrating to us, and it becomes very clear that his opinion of Beck is very important to his understanding of how they would be in a relationship together. And once she begins to be seen as like an undesirable object to him, she's made too many mistakes, she's not exactly the woman he wanted her to be, he's done with her. He turns. There's no long-lasting anxiety to care for her once she has sort of cross this invisible line he, he puts in this in the sand so that's that's why I think it is different and I and I know that I'm using the words because I think those are the best way to describe obs- obsessions and compulsions are the best way to describe what Joe is doing um, but it's not I'm not saying that that means he has OCD or that people who have OCD would do something like Joe and again he's fake he's a fictional character um, but I do want to say that and just you know can I give a shout out to anybody out there listening who is, who is diagnosed with OCD? Um, you know, I want you to feel seen and, and understood and, you know, to not feel like um, what you're going through is um, an inherently bad thing. So that's that's stalking, right? I think it's pretty clear that you is about stalking. <laughs> um, and uh, I do think it's very interesting that the way this stalking is portrayed in the show is pretty spot on with, with what we see reflected in the data. Um, okay, so great transition. I was talking about like obsession, right? And that the whole show, especially this first season, I think really grapples with the difference between obsession versus love. Um, so Joe really frames his interest in Beck as love, and he's over and over again calling her like the one or the one he's meant to be with, his soulmate in his mind. Um, he's His actions, though 
are not the actions of someone who loves one another, but is of an obsession and an an obsession with possessing her, like of making her his own. He also demonstrates over and over again over the show that he's unable to tell the difference between love and obsession. And I think that really plays out with um, the way that he's unable to let her um, have relationships with other people, whether it's platonic or not. Like he, especially even with Peach, as complicated as that relationship is, for Beck, Peach is a very dear friend and Joe is really unable to manage himself um when beck is around peach because he is um misinterpreting his obsession with her as love but if he truly loved her he would be able to build trust with her and be able to understand why peach is so important to her and why peach should should still be in her life now you know beck setting boundaries with peach i think is another issue and if you have a friend who is continuously crossing your physical boundaries and trying to seduce you in the way that peach is doing to beck um you know I think that 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 can also be a bad thing, and there are are boundaries to be put in place there, and conversations to be had about that. But I'm gonna I'm focusing more on Joe here and his uh, total lack of boundaries, <laughs> um, as evidenced by his continuously following back around. Um, he we also see again, like I was saying before, there's this idea of like uh, he has this invisible line. So his his obsession with the women in his life is very conditional. So there is a it, the opposite of unconditional love. There are conditions to his love. And he, he seems to have um, almost like an invisible, not invisible, but like a mental tally of mistakes that uh, women have made. He, he, his narration when he talks about Beck mentions this, like there's a, a scene where she gets a little too intoxicated at a bar and he, of course he's there because he's following her. And he, it mentions in the narration like, okay, well maybe we won't do that again, you know, like maybe we don't have to do that back. We could stop <laughs> getting too drunk. Um, you know, he, he kind of counts that against her. Um, and he, he seems to have this like limit where he only tolerates so many of those mistakes. Um, and we see between the way he treats Beck and the way he treats Candace, that there are only so many of those things he'll allow. And his pattern is that when that line is crossed, his answer is to kill. Now, it's it's both uh, Candace and Beck. It's revealed that they have had affairs and have cheated on him. It's it's it is shown that Candace and him weren't very serious, so he's kind of escalating it. But um, and Beck appeared to be having an affair with her therapist after she broke up with with Joe, or you know maybe there was some crossover. But you know I I think there for some people infidelity is a very hard boundary, and they would terminate a relationship for that. But Joe takes it to the next level where he terminates a life, right? He, he kills someone because of, of, of a hard boundary for him. So it is, I think, it's not unacceptable or, or out of the ordinary to think that, oh, if you find out your partner has been unfaithful, that you would react negatively. But again, Joe is kind of escalating the negative reaction to the next level. Um, I think one of the key differences for why Joe becomes obsessed with women and isn't able to love them is that he's primarily driven by jealousy. I did find this very interesting article that's linked in the sources page um, about the theories of jealousy and that there may be different types. Um, And basically a lot of the theories boil down to two main types of jealousy, more reactive types, which are um, jealousy that arises in reaction to finding something out. So finding out that your partner cheated, reacting with um, jealousy 
and then proactive jealousy, which is like this, um, nothing has happened yet, but you are engaging in behavior and attempting to prevent your partner from having any type of potential contact or interactions with, um, like extramarital partners or extra relational partners. Um, some authors have even argued that some people have dispositional jealousy, which would be like their personality is geared to being more jealous um, and, and acting more jealous regardless of partner behavior. So we have reactive, proactive, and then dispositional jealousy. I think Joe kind of displays all three. Like he does react in a jealous manner when he is told about his partner's infidelity. Um, I would say, though, the majority of what he does is proactive jealousy. He is, whether that means just murdering <laughs> men or women that get close to his partner, or through stalking and manipulating their technological devices, he's doing everything that he can to kind of like create a buffer and like drive that person to him. Um, but I think we could also argue that, that Joe's disposition is to jealousy, and he's quick to jump to the worst conclusion, which I think is getting in the way of him being able to develop like a truly loving and trusting relationship because he's always going to be suspicious or second guessing the behavior or actions of his partner. So I, th I think for me, that makes the most sense for why Joe is unable to truly love someone else and why he is so stuck in this like obsessive pattern is is this jealousy and he's probably dealing with all these multiple types of jealousy um although i would i would vote for proactive jealousy as being the most um prevalent in the show in in his presentation um and then lastly i just i've kind of talked about this um throughout but like the presentation of mental health professionals um, in the show particularly in season one we have Dr. Nikki who interestingly enough is played by John Stamos which was a big surprise to me when he appeared on the screen when I was watching the first season um but he you know the, the way the character is played is he he kind of leans into this like stereotypical trope of a therapist uh, particularly like an older male therapist who uses his position to have sex with his younger female clients um, and when Joe is seeing him they're very contrasted of like Joe is like I said before is presented as like wanting to display his masculinity in a different way whereas Dr. Nikki is portrayed as like pretty traditionally masculine um, and you know kind of an icky thing is that like Joe goes in and pretends to be gay um, I just, I, I don't know if that was super necessary for Joe to, like, pretend to be gay to, like, throw Dr. Nikki off the scent, um, but it's, it's really contrasted, like, the way that they, um, portray their masculinity, and I think that's one of the, the things that kind of eats at Joe is, like, well, this, Beck seems to go for these more traditionally masculine guys, um, and Joe's trying to be, like, the perfect, like, gentle man, gentleman <laughs> um and it's not working like she's it, it really is this trope of like nice guys finish last right like she's always going to go for the bad guy or the the mean guy and she's never going to go for little joe in the corner um and you know i don't want to say that it doesn't happen like it does happen that unfortunately people of all genders who are in helping professions therapists included will violate ethical boundaries and have sex with their clients but I'm making it clear here that it is 
unethical. There is no situation in when it is okay for therapists to have sex with their client. And although Dr. Nikki, of course, doesn't deserve to go to jail forever for a crime he didn't commit, like, he did not murder Beck, I, it's sort of like karmic justice that he does get consequences for having an affair with his patient. And I think it's also clear that doc- this is not the first person that Dr. Nikki has done this with. Um, and that if you are under the care of a therapist or a mental health professional right now, I just want to be very, very clear that at no point does professional therapy include sex or any sexual content, or not content, but contact. Um, you can talk, obviously you can talk about your sex life with your therapist and, you know, questions and process whatever you need to, but your therapist should not be bringing sexual contact to you um, or even initiating like inappropriate sexual content that, that isn't relevant to your work together. Um, so if you ever do find yourself in a situation where a mental health professional or any helping professional um, is kind of crossing that boundary, I really, really, really want you to know that you can be empowered to report that person, that it is not appropriate. There's no justification for it. And they, as the authority person or the person in a position with more power, should know better and should know that it is unethical uh, and, quite frankly, can cause them to lose their license. So, you know, just a little public service announcement there. Um, And, you know, I don't like to see therapists portrayed this way because I think that sometimes a lot of our media portrays mental health people in a very negative light, which can discourage people from going to seek therapy. But I also do think it is important to acknowledge that this happens and that it's not a good thing. It should never be portrayed as like particularly romantic or, you know, like, oh, these are just two people who are so attracted to each other that they, you know, they can't be held back by their professional constraints. Like, no, it's, it's not that. Um, and that, you know, Dr. Nikki does deserve some comeuppance. Not, again, not going to jail for a murder he didn't commit, but some karmic comeuppance for, you know, crossing the line in this way. Um, So that being said, I think that really wraps up season one. Season one really sets the tone for us of Joe, what Joe's pattern is. Joe also has this uncanny ability to constantly get away with (laughs) very heinous crimes and the amount of people that he murdered (laughs) over the season. um, It is truly astonishing that he never got caught. Um, but, you know, I think it shows you that an unassuming white guy who really keeps his head down and, you know, doesn't make too much noise can get away with a lot, um, which I don't know if that's scary or not. <laughs> Just something to think about. Um, but yeah, we, we, we see some patterns. The show's really starting to develop its feet and its characters. Um, you know, unfortunately, some of these characters can't come back in the next season because they are have been murdered by Joe. Um, but we will see some of them continue on into season two and three um and i'm really excited to go into the other seasons as well and kind of see how these themes continue particularly that difference between obsession and love um and i think we'll we learn more about joe in the next seasons that help us to understand um but that is something that i think if you had been a standalone season or standalone show and season one was the only season to get made i think it is really interesting that there isn't a whole lot of justification done for Joe's behavior. We find out a little bit about his past. We know that Mr. Mooney was not great to him, um, but it's 
really in contrast to what he's done to other people isn't much of a justification so if this were to be a standalone season I think it is really unique to have a villain or an anti-hero who doesn't have this huge background of childhood trauma now we'll see that start to change in season two and three and we learn more about Joe spoiler alert it never excuses his behavior <laughs> um, but it, it does show us some interesting messages about the way that past experiences, particularly childhood experiences, influence um, current behavior. But that is for the next few episodes. Um, Thank you again for sticking around to hear me ramble about one of my favorite TV shows, and I hope to see you in the next one. Bye-bye! To see the sources and resources mentioned in the episode, visit psychologicallymindedpod.com or click the link in the show notes. To contact me with any questions or comments about this topic or upcoming episodes, email me at psychmindedpod at gmail.com. Please rate and review on Apple Podcasts and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Thank you and see you in the next episode.